Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, could the I'm a Celebrity Grand Final work as a mere warm-up? the Brexit head-to-heads. We discuss the many ways broadcasters might make the political debate palatable to the great British public. Also, why freelancers in radio may force a change in pay, how Mark Zuckerberg's year got a little bit worse, and why another crop of free sheets bit the bullet. Plus, we talk Netflix and the giant peach. And finally, in the media quiz, we test our pundits' knowledge of the lighter stories of the week. It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. Joining me today is broadcasting consultant and long-standing MediaPod contributor, Paul Robinson. Paul, where have you landed from today? Oh, I've just walked around the corner from Sony, so from Golden Square, long way. Come on. No passport required. Come on, where have you been? Um, oh, I was in the States last week, I was in Spain the week before that, I'm going to Germany next week, but other than that, nowhere at all, really. <laughs> also joining us, host of the Gender Not podcast and journalist, Naz tavakoli Far. Hello, Naz, welcome back. Hey, okay, how's it going? What have you been up to? Uh, today, I was around the corner as well, so I've... I've also just popped over do, uh, making a documentary about a heavy topic. Oh, can, yeah. care to share? Uh, corruption. Okay. Yeah. Why, why, why it exists. Why so corruption I feel like exists? I've had quite a heavy day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sounds... <laughs> With a big mission. So. <laughs> okay, this is your unwinding then. Some gossip yeah. about media stories. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, let's plunge straight in with the lightest of all stories, the Brexit political debate. Um, Theresa May wants the BBC proposal uh, to host her Brexit TV debate, but the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, wants the debate to air directly before the I'm a Celebrity finale on ITV. And at the time of recording, nothing is sorted. Um, Paul, what do you think would be the point, really, of this debate? I don't get it, because in a general election, the public are deciding. The public have already decided. Well, I suppose that one thing you can say about Brexit, I think, is that possibly... Uh, people are not as well informed as they should be and maybe over the last two years maybe they've started to realise what the issues are at the time the referendum took place I suspect that most people didn't really know what they were voting for and that clearly was a problem so if this debate can shed some light and can help people uh, understand what the issues are because we're now hurtling towards this in March that would be a good thing I think the issue of course is whether you know Corbyn versus May is the right casting but I think also critically for me is I hope we can have a good moderator who ensures there's proper debate. I think some of these TV debates in the past have been characterised by really extremely poor chairing, extremely poor moderation. 
situation. So you end up people shouting at each other and there's no real debate about the facts. So that would be my hope. In terms of the, the, um, the choice of BBC or ITV, the idea of going after or before, and the celebrity is really smart. I mean, 14 million viewers is a lot of people and in this year's been record audiences. Uh, I think the one thing that maybe Jeremy Corbyn doesn't understand is that going before I'm a Celebrity doesn't guarantee a big audience. So you might want to go after I'm a Celebrity. So in scheduling terms that might be not be the smartest but ultimately I think it's got to be a debate that's going to help people understand the issues. Maybe they could do a brand clash like the X Factor has done and have a Brexit themed challenge in the jungle. I think the whole thing's really cynical on Corbyn's part. Because, I don't know, now isn't really the time for a debate, right? Everyone's voted on it and everyone's sort of freaking out about what's going to happen in March, so... Well, it's also, I get, it comes back to my original question, which is, what's the point for mm-hmm. the audience? I mean, you watch it, they each give their view, but unless you're actually about to vote for one or the other in a general election, so what? It's up to the parliamentarians to decide anyway whether the plan goes through. I mean, I literally don't understand what the thinking is behind it. Because I, I think it's different. Paul, I get your point about people are confused, they don't really know what's going on. Um, that format you would want a couple of good interviewers to sit down with Theresa May or a few others and be like, you know, talk us through what's going on. Whereas a debate with her and Corbyn, I don't know, I think it's a really different vibe. Well, OK, so on that casting point that you bring up, Paul, the alternative, I think the BBC proposal, as you would expect from the BBC, is a more pluralistic, let's get Nicola Sturgeon on as well, you know, let's talk to the Green Party. The public don't want that, do they? Not really, because actually, to be honest, I mean, they're not really going to care what Nicola Sturgeon has to say. No, unless not, they're living in Scotland. Unless they live in Scotland. You know, so I, I don't think that really is the answer. I mean, ultimately, I think the viewing figures for this are going to be very disappointing because I think most people are now jaded, uh, you know, tired, you know, want to get on with it. Whatever their view about whether we remain or, or, or we don't, um, you know, the decision's been made. Um, it's now about what's the best way of, uh, of making this work. And, and ultimately, a debate doesn't help that. So I think it'd be very interesting to know, you know, what the details of the May proposal are and what that might lead to in terms of how we exit. I think it's important to understand, too, that um, a, an exit without a deal is going to be worse for the country. And that's something I think that needs to be taken into account. There's a lot of game playing going on, you know, game playing in the commons, uh, game playing by other nations. You know, the, the French want our fishing rights. The Spanish want to take Gibraltar over, taking advantage of this uh, maybe moment of weakness for the UK. What matters now is that we get on with it and whatever the outcome, you know, we try and preserve the strength of the economy, we try and preserve jobs and we then move forward as a strong nation. But the broadcasters are all keen to vie for their channel to be the one that gets to host it. Do you think that's right, Naz? Or do you think actually, you know, if you were running Channel 4, you'd say, fine, leave it to the BBC. It's not our business. I don't think there's anything wrong with what they're doing. Like, I, I can see why they want to vie for that. Except, you know, what's interesting about ITV is, you know, I suspect that, you know, if I'm a celebrity final gets 14 million, which it probably will do, this debate will get four or five million. Actually, for ITV, that's a financial hit because probably the show that would have been there other than debate would have got a much bigger audience. So they're going to take a financial loss on the advertising. But also we know that Theresa May in particular does not give good soundbite. Like, we've seen enough times now that this will not be compelling television. It won't <laughs> she be, will be it won't just be reading compelling. the same things again and again. It won't be compelling television. And the people who make good soundbites on Brexit are the people who, you know, <laughs> depending on how you approach the political question, <laughs> cause the issue in the first place. You know, Nigel Farage is compelling on Brexit. Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Yeah, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, it's going to be quite boring, even with the stakes so high. I'm afraid it will be. OK, let's move from telly to print and publishers' reach claim the old door-to-door model of print distribution is no longer viable. They've closed the 88-year-old free local title, the Solly Hull News. Um, it didn't used to be free, did it, the Solly Hull News? It was a paid-for paper. It was paper. a paid-for paper, yeah. And then it went free, yeah. and that was the Great White Hope, and now it's closing. 
Yeah, because they just can't get enough advertising to support it. You know, it didn't really do much for the overall distribution. Going free did not, like in London, the Evening Standard doubled its circulation when it went free. And so they were able to charge more for the advertising and make it work. But Solihull's not a big enough market. The advertisers aren't there. So the model's not working. So there is no alternative. And so now it's going to be just a local edition of the Birmingham Mail uh, for Solihull, which is the only way they can give some sort of local news in print to Solihull. And this is a subject that we've been talking about on this show. If you go back to the Guardian days, now as for 15 years now national media seems to be moving away from print so of course local media is too so no surprises here and yet you sort of think with free sheets there had been these glimmers of hope in London in particular the Evening Standard like you said Paul but then this week's shortlist closed as well that really was one of the great successes you know half a million copies distributed of that magazine they're closing too yeah no that's interesting because shortlist are closing but stylist which is by the same company and is focused on women they seem to be doing doing really well. So I wonder what that says about, you know, print, why it's working amongst women and it's not It's about the advertising men. market. The, the advertising market for male publications has absolutely declined, you know, and, and um, so Stylist will work because it's female skewed and there's more advertising for female skewed products but than wh- print. But why is that? I mean, people still want to buy beer and shaving products and women still want to buy makeup. What the, difference does it make? Because the way the planners work is they perceive men are elsewhere and they'd rather get them online where they feel there's greater accountability um, and then in a print medium. I have to say, I sometimes pick up the stylist and I had dismissed it for a while as like, you know, just shoes and bags or whatever. I can't believe I just said that. No, well, I just gave a very gentle example as well. But that is the case with the advertising market, isn't it? That's but the kind of thing that's in there. They do have really good articles. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. I have been surprised by it. Like, you know, when you're on the bus and you've got a short commute and you're like, no, this is actually... I, often I've taken the stylist with me. Well, um, this is the thing, isn't it? The commute read... That is something that's changed in the last decade, isn't it? Go back 10 years ago, and people were all reading Metro on the Tube in London. Now you look around, and they're listening to podcasts, or they're reading their iDevices, looking at the news that way. And they are. Remember, the commute, of course, is only really in big cities. You know, it might be in Birmingham, in Manchester, in London. It's not in... For most people, commute is not an issue. So there's no commute time. So it just doesn't exist as a reading opportunity. And it's interesting, the Johnson Press story this week, too, which was sold... You know, to JPI, which basically is the management buying back the titles. This is the uh, company that runs the Scotsman and the Eye. Exactly. And, and those are safe for the moment. Uh, but all they've really done is take away the debt. So there was debt of over 200 million. That debt has now gone away. But the real issue is, OK, yes, they've now got rid of that uh, operational debt. But can they make money on those titles? I suspect this is a short-term fix. And we'll be on this very podcast in a year's time saying this isn't working either. And now these titles are in threat. The fundamental thing is that these publications, unless they're in major markets, um, do not make money because the advertisers will not support them. And that trend is going to continue and it's only going to get worse. I mean, the eye is a particular example, again, a bit like Metro, of something that felt revolutionary when it came out, because in paper form, it was a bit like the internet. But it seems to be people are now preferring to just look at the internet. (laughs) Why look at a matrix of visual (laughs) stories when you have Twitter on your phone? Yeah, because I think this whole going back to print, um, like magazines have been doing that. And that works because, you know, magazines, like you want to look at something beautiful on your coffee table that you're going to flick through, you know, for several days a lot of them are beautifully stylized and there's a lot of art direction whereas i don't know your daily news i don't feel like 
everyone's now got a mobile connected device and so having everything aggregated in one place is so much easier than having lots of disparate ways of sourcing it so why would you do that you know and putting up with those ads that's an interesting thing you just said about you know even the advertising being beautifully sort of art directed that's true isn't it I'll read Esquire magazine and the first half of the magazine is ads for Dolce and Cabana and Louis Vuitton and watches I'm never going to afford but I don't mind because they're beautiful in their own right sometimes I'll flick through them to get to the articles but they don't get in the way in the same way that an ad for a Black Friday promotion at the Carphone Warehouse does when I'm trying to read The Guardian. It's different. It, it is different. And actually, there are many magazines that in the past I have specifically brought because I've liked the ads. I know that sounds like a weird thing to say. But, you know, if you're like, especially if you're into visual things, mm. you know, you're like, I've just bought, I don't know, Interview Magazine or whatever. Half of that is ads and they look like works of art. So there are some publications where you might even just buy them because you're, you're buying like a beautiful visual document. Well, that used to be the secret of the listings magazines as well, wasn't it? Is actually you'd buy time out because you'd look at all the theatre posters and stuff. You know? Absolutely. But I mean, that again is much better served online. So, okay, we learned today that digital advertising now accounts for 60% of all ad spend. It's going to grow from there. But what's quite interesting, Paul, radio expected to secure the highest expected to secure the second highest spend in 2019. Is, is that a surprise? Uh, not really, because radio has still got amazing reach and amazing audience. You know, I mean, the total number of hours consumed by radio are almost the same as those consumed by video, and by video I include television. So, you know, radio's um, ability to sort of withstand all of this change is quite extraordinary. There's something about radio and the audio medium that keeps it connected to consumers, uh, whilst you know the the rest of the uh, markets in turmoil. I mean, outdoor, print, you know, all these traditional media are struggling. Even television is struggling, of course, because the viewing is moving to online video. So radio's got this sort of relationship with consumers that somehow seems to transcend all this digital disruption. Except I do keep hearing the same ads. I mean, whereas on telly, I see a wide variety of ads. If I listen to LBC or Magic, I hear literally the same five or six ads on rotation. There's one for Boots, you know, because the one reason, for Jaguar. Because, because what radio does is, radio, because radio is a habit, radio gives you repetition. You know, when you buy an advertising campaign, you want to get a wide reach, but you also want to get lots of OTHs or OTSs, chances to see that. And what radio does OTH, is... OTH, OTS, um, Opportunities to hear, opportunities to see. Very good, OK. So if you have a radio campaign, the idea is to reinforce that message so it's high repetition. So you've seen it on the TV. If you've seen the images, you might then recall those when you hear the radio spot because you're actually you know, making a connection. But radio's job is to give that day-to-day repeat of that message and that's what radio does really, really well. That's why you get a smaller number of the same ads. But if it was so great, why wouldn't a wider number of companies want to advertise on the radio? That's what I don't understand. Because radio's not trendy and hot and, and sexy. You know, that's the problem. It's not perceived as such. But there is that thing of um, radio and now podcasts. It's like having a friend in the room. Mm. And I think... You don't get that with video or with print, and that's why I think radio continues to do so well. Even though, I mean, I've been in radio for my whole career, and when I started, I was like, this is the end, no one's going to be interested in this. <laughs> but it's, it is really interesting, just that feeling of, got a friend in the room with me. While you I'm make doing a, you make stuff. a really important point. I think you're completely right. I mean, that's the thing. You know, if you're intimate and you're personal and it's more, you know, more of a relationship, isn't it? That's what keeps radio uh, alive, you know, and it's that sort of intimacy and personal. And that's the same with podcasts too. Podcasts are more informal, you know, more chatty. It's like your mate or your friend. You know, Who you can also ignore while you're doing the dishes. Right. <laughs> doing and that's why, you know, that's why podcasts are doing so well too, I think. So there's something special about that. Yeah. All right, sticking with audio, let's talk about the Audio Production Awards. Were either of you there? 
No, I unfortunately not. No. I was probably somewhere less exotic. Well, I wasn't, no. Well, I was there at the very exotic BFI on the South Bank. And uh, had you been there, you, of course, would have been talking about the presenter of the uh, podcast producer of the year category. That was you then, yes. Think you, think you <laughs> was it good? Show. Uh, I was excellent. You were excellent, I'm sure you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. The, the, the reason, actually, that I said yes I'd like to present an award there is because I wanted a free ticket because it's a good it's genuinely a fun party I wasn't nominated and I wanted to be there and that says something about uh, any award ceremony I think it's the only one in the radio calendar that's just genuinely fun to be at and I think as well you know if you work in audio you know that there's always or very often producers behind the scenes that are kind of overlooked or ignored someone wins an award the presenter goes up and picks it up you know and it, the APAs these are the people who make the shows the people in the room are really supportive of that they're not necessarily people that get paid that well. It's a really nice vibe. Yeah, I mean, in, in other media, you know, whether it's movies or it's TV, the craft people, the production teams, they do get recognised. Yeah. And radio somehow is different. I was really pleased to see Wise Buddha and um, something else win. You know, I mean, I remember when Wise Buddha started, when Mark Goodyear, the Radio 1 DJ, formed Wise Buddha. And everyone and they, went, they were Indie Mark, of the Year. Indie of the Year. Mark, Mark Goodyear forming his own company. And Mark has um, really built that into an amazing company. And I'm just so pleased that all that work by that team has been paid off. They're, they're a great company. And similarly with Jez, you know, and obviously Steve Ackerman, who runs something else, another great uh, indie, you know, two really strong companies, British companies doing great audio. So I think it's excellent they were recognised, and I was really pleased to see it. But it, it possibly disguises the fact that for many true indies that aren't owned by bigger groups, they don't employ as many people as Wise Buddha and something else. Those are kind of the two biggest ones, aren't they? And a lot of indies is literally still someone and their laptop in their house. And it's tough out there. Sure. But, I mean, they started as nothing. You know, I mean, they, I mean, they didn't have the premises, you know. I'm not saying it isn't aspirational. Yeah, I, I think it's aspirational that you can build this, you know, over 10 years I'm just years saying maybe it gives a false impression of what the industry is really like. Um, possibly. Look, I mean, I think any industry, there's, there's people who are doing it in their you know, back garden and there's the bigger companies. That's true of everybody. Creativity can come from anywhere. You know, I mean, sometimes it's the small guy with the laptop sitting in his bedroom who comes up with the best ideas. And a lot of the speeches, and I was there, like I say, the tone was set from the first person who won an award, and forgive me, I can't remember who they were or what it was for now, but he mentioned straight away, and then it carried on throughout the evening. People were talking about the pay for freelancers. Now, were you following that online afterwards? I was following that online. It got quite heated as well. Mostly freelancers feeling like they couldn't be open about pay not being great because that might shut doors which is a is a dilemma freelancers often have in a lot of industries and um, but I think because especially audio is really booming right now maybe there is the impression from outsiders that there's a lot of money here and the producers Eleanor McDowell and Heidi Pett are trying to standardize and improve day rates in radio by creating a new production rate card what do you make of that as an incentive? So the idea is freelancers say this is this is anonymously what I get paid for the kind of work I do so that people know what the benchmark should be. I think it's a great idea. Um, and pay is so difficult to talk about generally, even if you're like an employee and you know that a lot of your colleagues are probably getting something similar to you. And so if you're a freelancer and you're dealing with a range of different companies, it can be at a real loss. But so it, I think it, that's a great idea. I looked at the, the website survey, Paul, and it, it lets you specify what kind of job you do. So, for example, I'm a full-time producer in audio or I just produce one show. But it doesn't really account for your experience. And then you tick a box saying whether you earn under £100 and then there's numerous categories up to implausibly over £1,000 for being a producer of an audio show, which I find hard to imagine but possibly exists. I'm not sure that data in a way is that helpful unless you know who the person is, unless you know why they're being paid that much money. No, it's a bit like the disclosure, isn't it, of the BBC presenter salaries. You know, it only gives you a very sort of top level view. It doesn't really 
expose experience or you know maybe they're doing different jobs or they've got other jobs that fa- factor into it or their I relationship mean, with the talent you, or know, relation, the, you the know, talent. the presenter says I'm only going to do it if this yeah. person's producing I mean I think it's useful to have a guideline you know to have a guideline and maybe have some sort of floor amount some sort of minimum I mean obviously what you should not do is have people exploiting people um, and so I think if there are people doing that it's right that we should expose that and make sure people are paid fairly you know, on the other hand, of course, people can only be paid what they can be afford to be paid based on the revenue that comes in, and there's not a huge amount of money. But obviously, we don't want people exploiting uh, talent, and so it's important, I think, that there's you know a reasonable level of disclosure. But ultimately, it's going to be down to those companies. And you know, if you don't like it, then you're going to have to go somewhere else. I'm afraid that may be the ultimate uh, action you have to take. But isn't the truth about audio that it's actually really cheap to do? Like, if you if you want to do audio cheaply, like we are now, frankly, three people sitting in a room, three microphones plugged into it, you know. We could do this for absolutely nothing, and we're doing it, you know, for very little. But we could, if we were being sponsored by a brand, say, oh, yeah, it's two grand an episode. And people would have no idea. They've no idea how audio is made. Well, when you say cheaply, I don't know if you're factoring in time. Sure. Because if you want to make a good audio product, there's a lot of editing and stuff. Because everyone says this, they're like, oh, just get together with three mics. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, maybe compared to video where you've got more equipment and it's more, ty- it's more production intensive. But I guess my point is, if there's almost always a way of telling a client who might not know the realities of producing the show that the budget for this show needs to be a certain amount, there's sort of not an excuse for not paying people for working on it because there must be money there. It's just that money's going to someone else. It's going to the person who pitched the idea, isn't it? It's not going to the person who's making the show. Well, I, I think the fact that people don't know how time-intensive a good audio show is is part of the problem, though, because mm. they might think, oh, X amount should be fine for this. Whereas, like, people in the know are like, I don't know, that's 12 days worth of editing. I think it's easy to underestimate the value of good production because you make it sound easy. But, I mean, you know, this podcast, like, hopefully, is you know, well-received as a good podcast, but there is work that goes into it. You know, Rebecca, the producer, has to organise the guests. She has to organise the running order to decide on the topics. You know, we look at the topics. We think about them before the podcast. You come along with your script. You think about the questions. There's then editing after it. That's, that's justifying my thousand pounds. That's all work, you know. <laughs> that's all work. And this is a fairly simple podcast with just three voices. Add a bit more complexity, and it's even more work. So I think, I, I agree with you. I think you under underestimate the work that goes into making something sound like it's really simple and really easy i mean even the podcast i do which is kind of a chat like mostly a chat show the amount of work like you say you know sourcing guests uh having a bit of a script knowing what you're going to talk about then editing what sounds like a chat but it might be like an hour and a half edited down to 20 minutes yeah people underestimate underestimate that and then you've got so many great audio shows that are super complex we'll be back with more mega complexity after this This episode of the Media Podcast was recorded at Run VT's production house in the heart of Soho, which has just celebrated its 23rd birthday. In fact, the party is still raging outside this room. Congratulations, Run VT. The building houses 15 offline and two online editing suites, as well as a moody bass-like grading theatre, voiceover booths, and swanky meeting room. That's what I'm in right now. Bring on the swank. To edit your next show at RunVT, go to runvt.tv now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Time for some media news in brief now. Naz and Paul are still with me, and let's talk about Paul Dacre. Cue Thunderbolt sound effect. Uh, He came out swinging at his Society of Editors speech earlier this month, targeting Alan Rusbridger, Lord Leveson, and the BBC. Um, Naz, have you revisited some excerpts from the speech? Some, yeah. What did you learn? I mean, I could see what he was getting at in some respects. This is the hard thing, isn't it, for a lot of people, Paul? They read the speech and they're like, I sort of see what he means, but he sounds like such a knobend. I mean, that's the truth, isn't it? He's just so smarmy and unpleasant with it, but he has a point. But it's the Daily Mail, isn't it? I mean, that, this is the Daily... I mean, he, he knows how to get a headline. What did he say? What did he enlighten us what he said? Well, I, I don't really want to repeat what he said. What I, what I would say is he basically Well, I'll repeat what he said. What... He said that Alan Rusbridge had made a series of mistakes in running The Guardian, that it was financially mismanaged, that he did the Berliner format of The Guardian as basically a glory project for himself, and, you know, it was always on a tantamount to losing and that the BBC's really self-righteous, and that The Guardian's their in-house publication. That's what he said. Okay. Like I said, okay. he's sort of right. It sounds like another. Well, I mean, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of Berliner format, I don't know whether Berliner format or tablet format would make any difference. I mean, you know, he, he was the only one who had the Berliner format, so he was an innovator in that sense. Was that the right decision? I don't think there's any evidence to say it was the wrong decision. Whether it well, they've stopped doing it to cut costs. Well, yeah, to cut costs, because it was obviously a unique, a unique format. But that was but his I mean, point. Never should have done it, because they've wasted well, money instead of employing Hindsight's a wonderful thing sometimes, Yeah, but you need it? to take risks, though, don't you? Exactly. And he took a risk. I, 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 look, I don't I don't think it's any any way of saying that there is evidence that that decision was a negative decision for the Guardian. You know, in terms of this idea that the, uh, every newspaper is is right and every other newspaper apart from the Guardian is is a complete bunch of idiots. You know, it's clearly nonsensical. Um, I don't think Rushbrigger said that in his book actually. So no, I think no. that's absolutely that's you know, his, interpretation, uh, his interpretation. I mean, on the BBC, look, the BBC does have a little bit of a problem being a bit pompous and a bit inward looking and a bit self righteous. Yes, it does. All public broadcast around the world do that's because of the way it's funded it doesn't have to earn its money its money comes in it decides how to spend it does the BBC generally do good stuff absolutely are there many more positives about the BBC yes of course but it's but supposed that's, to reflect that's not the a good public, story, isn't it? Is it? His, his point was 
the Daily Mail predicted Brexit, understood the public mood, and oh, the BBC had did. not a single patch of that. The Daily Mail and the BBC have been sparring partners for 30 years. I mean, it doesn't matter if the BBC did something amazing, the Daily Mail would always criticise it. That's the Daily Mail's point of view. So, look, I mean... The Daily Mail knows how to get a headline. The Daily Mail is consistently, you know, digging at the BBC. There's nothing new here. It was not a surprise he'd do it in his leaving speech. He wants to go out with a bang. He did it. We're talking about it. Job done for him. He did sort of say that he got it wrong on the enemy of the people, didn't he? He said that that headline should have been what the Telegraph put, which was something like the judges against the people or something, yeah. but he took it too far. Okay, well, fair enough. Well, thank you for that, Paul. That's a nice little concession. But <laughs> otherwise, otherwise he just had a go at everybody. This is what you expect. I mean, honestly, I think it done and dusted. You know, he's gone now, so let's move on. Naz, do you agree with Dacre that it's likely that there might be a Fox-style right-of-centre news network yet to establish itself in British culture? Perhaps, because I think that's sort of missing from our market. Because Ofcom per- doesn't allow it, basically. But then the argument is... Well, you've got RT, so why not have a right-wing version of that? They seem to get around the rules. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the regulation is going to change to permit it, so in that sense it's a mute point. Um, Is there a demand for it? Uh, There might be, but I don't think it'd be a commercially viable product. I don't think we're the same as the US. I mean, if you're drawing a parallel with Fox News in the US, I don't think there's an appetite for that sort of journalism in this country in any large degree so Why not? I just don't think it's going to happen I don't think it's going to be allowed to happen and I don't think there's actually any real uh, editorial uh, demand for it but it's clear in speech radio that controllers think that the way to get listeners is to drift right of center isn't it you know if you look at talk radio LBC yes they have you know left of center presenters but 80% of the schedule is right of centre because that's the red meat, isn't it? People yeah. shouldn't be on benefits. Let's make things harder for people in jail. That's what gets the ratings. Well, I draw your attention to the very first talk radio when it launched in 1995, which went even further right than the current talk radio. And what happened? It couldn't get any advertisers. No one wanted to be part of it, so they couldn't get any advertising to support it. So they were forced to go left to make the business viable. I don't think you're going to get commercial support for such a venture. But what about in today's climate, though? I still don't think he would today. I don't think advertisers want to go there. Advertisers now are very concerned about their brand and how it's represented. And I think advertisers are moving to be more correct and more diverse and more understanding of the way with society is now, not the opposite. Um, so I, I just don't think there'll be the advertising support for it. You're nodding, Naz. No, I, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Because I guess especially, like, I'm thinking social media, right, if, if there's something... Social media would probably kill it, wouldn't it? Because what would happen is people would then go onto Twitter or whatever and Facebook and say, don't support this brand. And we know people then wouldn't support that brand. I mean, you see, you know, for example... But you're imagining uh, a brand that's requiring advertising. I mean, how else would you you fund it? Well, Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins do online broadcasting that doesn't require advertising because they just get supporters that believe what they're saying. Yeah, but I don't think you can sustain a network without any revenue. I mean, you, an individual can't support a proper network. You said that's a, what the Guardian's you, trying to do. You said a network, not, not an individual standing in front of a camera uh, reporting. That's not the same thing. A channel, a network, there's a right-wing, a proper right-wing network with proper debate and with proper production. Back to our point about production, there's no way an individual can afford that. You're either going to have it funded via um, carriage fees, but, a, but no one's going to pay carriage fees for that or advertising, or public money. I can't see any of those supporting it. Well, I suppose the interesting example that contradicts what he's saying is the Mail's own website, isn't it? Which isn't as 
right wing as the paper itself. I mean, if there was money in, in well, broadcasting... Well, it doesn't contradict what I say. It's actually supported. That's what I'm saying. The reason, yeah. the reason the website's like that is because it's supported by advertising yeah. and it's an international website and it wouldn't yeah. work if it had the same agenda as the domestic but newspaper. If, that's my point. If it works, yeah. they'd have an Andrew Pearce podcast, wouldn't they? Correct. But they don't. They don't. Uh, okay. Uh, 80 regional journalists will have their wages covered by Facebook thanks to a £4.5 million donation to the National Council for the training of journalists. I mean, as however cynical we are about Facebook's motives for doing this, and it is good PR for them in a storm of bad PR, this is a good thing, isn't it, that journalists who are losing their jobs otherwise are having some sort of income coming in? Um, I would be very careful of her. Maybe because I don't trust a company like Facebook at all. Um, and actually, it's, it's weird having... It's weird that I feel so strongly against this because a lot of these sort of big tech people have bought other papers or media ventures and managed to stay out of editorial. Something of like the Wash Post or like Time Magazine recently, but mm-hmm. I don't know, I just don't think, given what's going on with Facebook right now... Well, oh. Facebook aren't trying to buy local papers. I think they're no, acknowledging... but still, I don't know. I, I can see... No. <laughs> the idea, Paul, is they're acknowledging that the audience for local papers, as we were discussing earlier, is on social media anyway, so they have responsibility for filling the gap. I guess the problem is, once you're trained up, where do you go and work? Because the papers won't exist anymore. Well, that's true. Maybe you can go and work somewhere else. Then. Maybe the journalism skills are transferable. I mean, I think it's good the money's going to UK journalism training. That's a good thing. I think my issue really is about the scale of this. You know, 4.5 million sounds like a lot of money, but actually it's absolutely nothing for Facebook. I mean, it really is a drop in the ocean. I mean, when you think that um, Facebook last year took £1.3 billion from the UK, £1.3 billion, and that's up from 842 2 million the year before they are absolutely making squillions from the UK so this is you know this is lost in the roundings this is like your expenses this is like you claiming a cup of coffee for your expenses it's nothing it's a it's a gesture but it's a gesture that really is far too small and I think is an attempt to get good PR is not a real commitment and I say that because I, I do worry about Facebook I mean they made a big thing about investing in original content and now, of course, this month they said, oh, we're now we're not going to invest in original content. I, I think you'll be very, very wary of what Facebook did. I feel like if Facebook cared, which they don't, <laughs> they would be um, sharing their advertising revenue with publishers more fairly. So if they want to sort of help journalism be sustainable, that's kind of what they should be doing. It's, it's kind of like a lot of people in the media are asking them for something. And instead of cooperating with that, they're like, oh, we'll just give some money for this other thing. But to speak up for their business model, I mean, they'd say they're just matching the kind of rates that were offered by Google anyway that transformed the industry. It's not like Facebook created that migration to online. And they're also creating the possibility to target very specifically, controversially, but very specifically based on interests and political allegiance and all the rest of it in a way that other media organizations cannot offer. So that's worth that's worth something. When you get those readers, you're paying for their service to do that. How did you feel about Mr. Zuckerberg not turning up this week at the Grand Committee on Fake News? Well, the second time he's done this, uh, he didn't turn up either to the DCMS committee, so there's a bit of track record here. I mean, this seems incredibly arrogant, given it was a number of nations and a lot of very senior people. Should they have uh, empty-chaired him? Was that a bit of a Should stunt? they what, sorry? They empty-chaired him, didn't they, and took a picture? Yeah. I mean, I don't Which think... Which ironically seemed to be for social media. <laughs> I would say I think it's naive of them to expect Mark Zuckerberg to turn up. You know, why would he turn up? He has absolutely nothing to gain from turning up. So he was never going to turn up. Um, and he's not going to turn up because he can't answer the questions. He doesn't want to answer the questions. There is no accountability to these people. And therefore, why would he show up? So, I mean, because I, their reputation is looking really bad right, right now. So, the, well, the, the issue the issue is 
Um, how does he manage the company going forward? And is it going to have any impact on the company? And the answer is, it's not really having any impact on the company. So why would he care? You know, he doesn't care. I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't care. He doesn't need to show up. He doesn't need to be accountable to these people, and he's not going to be. I don't know if you saw the BBC story this week that said the best way to curb the spread of fake news was basically not to react to it in any way at all. Don't feed the <laughs> trolls. Don't click dislike. Don't share it and say, I can't believe this fake story. Just ignore it. Yeah. Do you think that message is getting through to the public? Um, it might slowly, yeah, it might slowly. I mean, I think more and more people are disengaging from Facebook, for a start. Um, what I hear internally from Facebook is a lot of people within the company aren't happy with things. So I actually think... Well, I mean, whether that's your anecdotal evidence or not, we saw another executive leave this week, didn't we? One of the guys from WhatsApp has now left, and the Instagram founders have left. So people that have sold their companies to Facebook for billions have left yeah and look and at I the think... numbers i mean look, you know unfortunately you've got to look at this as a business you know i've just quoted the numbers for the uk they nearly doubled their revenue in the last two years it's a business for, you know don't don't think they're nice people it's a business and they're doing very well and if they're doing very well financially they will continue to pursue those policies but you do wonder why and this is speculative but why someone from whatsapp might leave facebook bearing in mind their entire their entire raison d'etre was about encryption the obvious speculation is that Facebook are intending to harvest that data too. I don't know. I, I feel less positive about, about how they're going. I think they need to start sort of cooperating a bit. Let's talk about Netflix, one of the other Fang companies, um, and the Rolled Dull universe coming to their screens thanks to a deal. We don't know how much they've actually bought the author's estate for, but it won't have been cheap. And the idea is they're going to make a whole slew of children's programs based on Rolled Dull characters. A goodbye, do you think, Naz? Yeah. Definitely. What is so great about Roald Dahl though, is that he, he appeals to adults as well. Mm. Like, you know, he's one of those authors where you read him as an adult and you, you get a completely different picture and you're like, this guy is really mean, but quite funny as well. So I can imagine, like, those, these would be great shows to sit down and watch with the whole family, you know? Which, so I think he's quite a, good, quite a good author if you want to kind of capture a lot of different markets. And also very distinctly British. I mean, I know they've done American adaptations where they've tried to Americanize the characters but it seems to me the wise thing to do here would be to appeal to Anglophile audiences around the world like Harry Potter basically. I think what Netflix want to do is they want to take authentic stories from markets and then they want to make them into global stories but keep the authenticity of the original mm. uh, country you know I mean the, the thing that's always quoted to me as an example is, is Coco the Disney movie as an example of how Netflix liked to do kids and family so they kept the authenticity of that ceremony of the dead in South America but it became a global hit because the storytelling was so universal. What's interesting about Netflix, I think, is that they are really investing in kids. And, and I've personally done quite a few deals with Netflix now in the last 12 months, and they are really uh, investing very heavily in kids because they see it as such an important part of what they do. But the point you make about family is also right because they want adults to watch as well because what, they, what this content does is it's anti-churn. It stops people churning. Um, you know, there's no contract with Netflix. So, of course, now they've got, you know, as in the UK, 10 million subscribers for example they don't want to lose those people you know if you've got a churn rate of 10 percent, you're replacing one million every year that's a very expensive thing to do and that pester so, power of children is really powerful kids, isn't it yeah it's not it's not pester power it's not pester power at all it's actually um the handbrake what it's about is you will not churn out of netflix if that child loses that show yes exactly because that child's going to complain so your life is made easier by keeping netflix and, and that's what Netflix are doing. I was very interested to see the, the comment by Sharon White, the CEO of Ofcom this week, who talked about Netflix in the context of, of public service broadcasters. And what, what Netflix are doing is they've got so much good content now. You know, it's become the go-to place, the de facto home. 
And I mean, her comment about saying to the public broadcasters, you need to get your act together so you've got a rival. So all that content's in one place, rather than going to the iPlayer, rather than going to Channel 4's On Demand, rather than going to My5, you want one place. It's absolutely right. And that's what Netflix is doing absolutely superbly. Okay, well, let's talk about that thing she was talking about, which is Freeview's new app. What do you make of this launch, Naz? It's coming in January. It will be an app where it sounds boring talking about it because it feels like five years ago, doesn't it, this technology? But the app doesn't exist yet and I suppose there is a need for it, it'll be an app where BBC, Channel 4, ITV, Channel 5 are all in one place, like Freeview on telly, like iPlayer on demand. Is it going to work? I don't see a downside to it, to be honest. Well, do you think people are going to download it, though? Uh, Yeah. Maybe I'm comparing it to podcasts, where you you can have an app where you can get content from BBC, NPR, indies, um, you know, a show someone's made in their bedroom. But the point is, haven't people now got their habit? They know to go to all four for their Channel 4 content. They know to go to iPlayer for their BBC content. Do they need another app on their phone? Is it too late? I actually think somewhere where you can collate all is better. Because I think people get sick of, you know, an app for this thing, an app for that thing. I sort of think they're waiting for Apple and Android to do their own version. I don't know if they want to get the Freeview app. Maybe it's just me. I just think it's not a very sexy brand now. I think they're late in the day with this. But the critical issue is that um, Freeview is confined to the home Mm. because you can only get Freeview via a set-top box or via a connected TV, smart TV. So if you want to watch these uh, these services on your mobile, you can't at the moment. And viewing is shifting to tablets and mobile. So the only way to keep Freeview alive is to make sure you can view it on your phone and your tablet. And that's why they need the app. So it's absolutely critical if they don't do this freeview will actually wither away and die as viewing moves away from uh, in home to out of home so this is a survival mode it's the right thing to do it's a bit late but i think it is the right move but it's difficult for the broadcasters isn't it because they're going to if they direct people to get this app to see their content on the go they're effectively saying don't come to our app where in the case of the bbc we can make sure you're only watching BBC content, some of which will surprise and delight you. Or in the case of ITV and Channel 4, we're not selling your eyeballs to our advertisers. It's no different to the current situation where you're actually using Freeview on your TV in the home. It's just an extension of that in, into a mobile situation. Do you think Freeview should be... Because the curated feed, what they recommend to you when you log in is quite important, isn't it? Should Freeview be prioritising the public service type content that Channel 4, Channel 5 and ITV do to match the BBC stuff? Well, it was or- set up by the public broadcasters to do exactly that as a counter to Sky and the pay TV broadcasters. So its purpose was to look after public broadcasters. So that, that's why it's there. I suppose the biggest test of whether a new PSB app can work is probably BBC Sounds, isn't it? Have you been using that? I have, yeah. What do you make of it? Uh, it's not bad. It's not bad. I, I like it. I like it because you can actually, it's easy to navigate. I like the fact all the podcasts are in there as well. I really like that. Um, and it's also good for listening to stations out of area as well. So I quite enjoy listening to, you know, to, to Radio Newcastle when I'm in London and they can do it very, very easily. So, so yeah, I think they've done a good job with BBC Sounds, actually. I'm arguing against myself, but actually, I mean, that is a new app, isn't it, that's come on the scene and seems to be pretty popular. So. And it's a public service app. And, um, you know, I mean, would I prefer it had all the commercial stations in there as well? Yes, I would. Um, is it a good service for the BBC? Yes, it is. Don't forget those independent commercial podcasts, too. They're marvellous. Uh, there is just time now for our media quiz. <laughs> This week it's called And Finally. Producer Rebecca has handpicked three low-key media stories that you should really hear about but aren't worth commenting on. Rebecca, I think you've just exposed the format of the media quiz. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Naz, you will say... Naz. And Paul, you will say... Ollie. Ready? Here is low-key media story number one. According to Ofcom boss Sharon White, which TV network closed... Paul. Quote, 
maybe years too early. Paul? BBC Three. Yes, the answer was BBC Three. Uh, she was responding to a question at the Freeview conference. They went online only in 2016. Was that years too early? I think it probably was. The, the reach of television by 1624s is 78%, and the reach by 25 to 34s is 87%, arguably the audience of BBC Three. So they're still watching a lot of broadcast television. Um, it's not until you get to um, kids and the very, very young, you get to a lower number. So actually, it was several years too early because these, this audience is still watching their television via conventional broadcast means. I mean, if you look at older people, 55 plus, it's 96%. Yeah, I mean, by this point, Naz, they told us when BBC Three closed, there would be standout hits that everyone knew were BBC Three and they'd be talked about and BBC Three would be a destination, as a, a digital destination, its own right online. Has that happened? I don't think it has, no. Um, Paul, what do you think the impact of losing their controller, Damien Kavanagh, to Tiger Aspect might have? He's a loss. I mean, he, you know, he's a very experienced executive and uh, he's clearly a loss. I mean, he's one of many BBC defections over the last few months, you know, both executives and talent. And the BBC seems to be getting a bit careless about losing talent. And I think that's because there's uncertainty in the organisation. And, you know, currently the BBC, maybe it's a happier place than Facebook, but I think the BBC <laughs> is, you know, not at the moment, you know, absolutely confident. And that's why you see people like Damien seeing opportunities outside. So, yeah, big loss. He'll do very well. Um, but uh, BBC needs to make, uh, I think, steps to try and secure its key talent. He's probably fed up of just having to make the case that I just asked about as well at every conference he goes to, isn't it? I mean, it's a decision that probably. he didn't even make. Here's Loki Media Story number two. Which journalist... Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. Which journalist is having an excellent week with two award Naz. wins? Naz. I've started to, I'll finish. And a chart-topping podcast under her belt. Naz. Um, Carol Kudwala. Yes. I'm glad you tried pronouncing that surname <laughs> rather than me. She has had an, ex- I mean, she's had an excellent year, hasn't she? All the Facebook... Uh, Cambridge Analytica stuff as well. What happened this week? So she won two awards, the Foreign Press Award and also the Political Studies Associations Award. Um, she's also got a hit podcast right now. A number one podcast, yeah. yes. Dial M for Muller. Have you yes. heard it yet? I haven't... Not yet. No. I but I will be tuning in because, you know, her work's been so great this year. Well, it's quite interesting. I mean, she basically started this show about the Muller investigation, its impact on Brexit, because she felt that that wasn't being reported and so she just did it out of frustration, she says. And she's acting all surprised that it's been popular. Well, I've never heard it, so I now will, because that's now been this, this very story has now raised my awareness of it, so I will be checking it out, but I have no knowledge at the moment. I suppose as well these victories, nice as they are, sort of flag up that not many journalists are given the opportunities that she has, you know, funded by a company like The Observer to spend three years chasing Nigel Farage for an interview. I mean, you know, most people don't have the opportunity to go that deep and that long. Yeah, that's true. But I wonder if a lot of a lot of these big media companies are also not giving many opportunities to their reporters to do that sort of like long-term investigative work that requires a lot of effort and you know you're not gonna get a result for a lot of what you do put in well she's been beavering away for years before getting this recognition hasn't she I mean, she's suddenly become a bit of a core celebrity yeah it's not it's not an overnight success i mean you know i think like so many award winners you know they suddenly are thrust into the spotlight and you think oh gosh where have they come from and actually they've been doing the groundwork but i think you're totally right i mean i think investigative journalism and long-term digging for stories is not you know commercially attractive is it you know there's no immediate return so i suspect that there's less and less of that sort of work being done but i do think what's interesting is okay maybe this says more about me but i think the public are really into that kind of stuff so whenever there's a good investigative piece um i'm thinking either here or in the u.s it always does really well so i think publishers or news organizations who are putting in money for investigative work 
and are thinking a bit long term, I think that's kind of a smart thing to be doing. It's easier to own it as well, isn't it? I yeah. mean, people credit if you've done long-term investigative work. Yeah, you know, the it's like the observer did yeah. X, yeah, yeah, of course. Which, you know, on a on a general scoop disappears yeah. within 24 hours, doesn't it? Or not even that these days, an hour. Yeah, an hour. Yeah. And I think especially in the era of like fake news and stuff, publications who are doing that, it really sets them apart and it kind of gives them a lot of credibility. Okay, we promise no discursive discussions during our low-key <laughs> media stories, so here it is. It's the tie break. Loki Media Story number three, buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Which local radio station, Paul. very impressive, Paul, I've started so I'll finish, gave a DJ who'd only ever broadcast from his shed a slot on their Christmas schedule, Paul? I know this because a long time ago I used to do the weekend breakfast show on this station. So BBC Three Counties Radio, based in Luton. Yes, I will bet Dunstable these days. Dunstable these days, yes. you're right. Yes, yeah. it is. It's in Dunstable. Quite a swish studios in Dunstable, which I, has I have, previously played host to the media podcast. I have, I have been there and appeared on there, yes. So this guy <laughs> called Deke, uh, Deke Duncan, a yes. great name, yeah. who started doing this in 1974 um, with a wire out the window from his shed, uh, and he's playing records to his wife. Um, Teresa. Teresa. So I think she should get the award for listening to this, her husband playing these records. But can you imagine? He was a young guy when he started, and he's now 73, and he's finally getting his show on BBC Three Counties. And the idea of broadcasting from a shed, ridiculous though it sounds, actually, I mean, Gideon Coe on Six Music broadcasts from a shed. Uh, didn't Desmond Carrington broadcast from a shed for a while? He did, a very posh shed, I think. Yeah, yeah um, sure it was. But it was, it was a shed. I mean, as are we today in a very nice shed with a chandelier, but it's still a shed. There's lots of wood around. Um, and talking of award winners as well, it's Justin Dealey, of course, on Three Counties Radio, who did that story. And again, someone who's been beavering away for a very long time as a reporter, Three Counties, my local station. He's brilliant and finally now getting the recognition he deserves too. Yeah, I think Three Counties is actually in a good place at the moment. Many BBC local stations, frankly, I think are underperforming badly and lack identity. But uh, BBC Three Counties, I think, is actually doing really well in a difficult patch because it's covering, you know, a very weird mix of counties. And there's Weatherspoons next door. <laughs> there is a Weatherspoons next door, yes. I've not been in there, though. Excellent Lavazza coffee. Always, always good value for money, Weatherspoons. Um, anyway, that's what you've won. Next time we're in Dunstable, Paul, we'll a buy you a coffee in Weatherspoons. Coffee. Yeah. Ollie, I will take you up on that and I look forward to it. <laughs> we, we took Jack Cantor and Trevor Dan to Dunstable. Oh, we had a lovely well, day. There you go. I, 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 uh, yes. Anyway, my thanks to Paul Robinson uh, and Naz Tavakoli Far. I'm sorry you didn't win the quiz. <laughs> if you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you enjoy the feeling of giving money to us, then please do consider taking out a voluntary subscription. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale. Sherry, The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.